what we've been doing in here for the last three weeks, and we're going to go entire month, because can you believe it? Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week, so we're only two weeks away from uh, Good Friday and Easter. It just always blows me away how quickly things move. But um, this will be the last Sunday. We're going to do a whole month of questions and answers. And this has been real important because it's, uh, it's been a time for us to kind of consolidate. We are pressing ahead with so much new information. And for some of you who are newer at the effect, uh, information that's coming from kind of a radically different point of view because we here are always looking at Jesus through the lens of a first century Hebrew Aramaic uh, perspective rather than through our Western interpretation. And so that, that really changes things. But um, we are going to uh, continue that today because all that dust that was kicked up from the bottom of the aquarium is uh, was what we've been dealing with uh, over the last uh, few weeks just answering questions that you have, but with the caveat, okay, with the disclaimer that um, this is not the Bible answer man. This isn't just uh, me giving you monolithic and quote-unquote true or right answers. Because in spiritual things, it doesn't work that way. In spiritual things, there's always a matter of uncertainty. In spiritual things, there are things we just can't know. We need to learn to live with paradox, We need to learn to live with mystery and uncertainty if we really want to follow the way of Jesus. And so what we're doing in here, if there is a question that you have that is either hanging you up or is, um, I don't know, keeping you awake at night and you're thinking about it, staring at the ceiling and wondering about these things, or if there are issues that you're facing, they're not necessarily theological or doctrinal, these are the things that we've just been talking through. And it's kind of like, you know, in Pirates of the Caribbean when they were talking about the pirate code And it's, well, it's not really a code. It's more of a guideline, right? So what I am giving out here is another way of looking at the issue. And if you think it works, if it's something you want to engage and walk down the path, terrific. If not, take what you need and leave the rest. As we've said so many times, it's up to us to create our own personal theology. And if that sounds in itself heretical to you, at least understand that any theology that you have received from your upbringing, from the church at large, from your Bible study, whatever it happens to be, until it's made personal, it's not going to change anything in your life. Until it's personal to you, until you've taken, out, taken it out and tested it in the laboratory of your life, in the streets of your life, then you'll never know if it's really true in the sense that it takes you closer to God. It makes you more able to do those two essential things. Accept life on life's terms, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and live with hope and gratitude. If we can't do those two things, then we can't be emotionally regulated for a starter. We can't just do the basic relational things in life that are required of mature human beings but we'll never have a platform from which to really then follow Jesus, really then move to where he is trying to take us. And so all these things are important. So we do this uh, QA, these conversations with that in mind, and hopefully that's enough of of an introduction. I had so many questions that were given to me on paper 
that were texted in and were emailed in or just, you know, over the shoulder in the parking lot, that kind of thing. I, I didn't even get to those last week. So I want to start with those this week. And I said that we we're probably going to split questions and answers with a little bit of talk about Lent. I don't know how much time we're going to have for Lent because there's a lot here and it goes pretty deep, but that's okay. You know, we maybe just mention Lent at the end and try to put that into a context for, for us and for our time. But, um, but I want to I try to get to these because they're really good. And if there are, as I'm going through these, if there are just follow-up kind of questions that pop into your mind, go ahead and, and yell those out because that'll, that'll be good for us to, to kind of look at all facets of this as we go through. Because this is pretty, this is deep stuff. This is stuff that goes right to the heart of our lives. So here's, here we go. Here's one that I've been holding for two weeks now. How can we go through Jesus to get to God when we have never been exposed to him as a person walking on the face of this earth, but only through pictures and taught by ministers? Ever wondered that one before? Was God being selfish when Jesus was resurrected and he took him to heaven? I was taught that God needed him. We need him here, all caps, on earth. He wants us to have a better life, doesn't he? Here we can only pray not really knowing if God is getting our prayers. These questions I have arose when I lost my husband of 46 years and was left alone without any sense of direction or purpose. And my question to God was, why? How could you take him from me when he was the most amazing person ever? I was angry with him, but I still prayed and prayed, but to no avail, with no answers or improvement. I still pray. But this is not what I was taught every Sunday at church growing up. I'm sorry. I'm not down on Jesus or God. I just need answers to my confusion. And a miracle on 34th Street would be a plus. Where is God now? And why isn't he helping us and protecting us? Get the context of that. Have you ever felt this way? Come on. Of course you did. We all do at times. Maybe you still are right now. There are several questions embedded in this, and there's a complex question embedded in this. I want to break this down and just take it a piece at a time because there's so much here. How can we go through Jesus to get to God when we've never been exposed to him as a person walking on the face of this earth, but only through pictures and taught by ministers? Yeah, you've got to watch those ministers. You know. you know, have you ever thought, because I certainly have, if I could just get one good burning bush, I'd have it all figured out. <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought, man, don't, doesn't it seem like the characters of Scripture have a, a leg up on us? I mean, they got the burning bushes. They got the theophanies. They got God speaking to them, you know, walking down the street with them, talking to them. They had Jesus for three and a half years or whatever it was that they got to actually ask him questions and hug his neck. I mean, how in the world can any of us compete with that? That's the thought that we always have. Somehow they had an advantage. That way we can be excused for our little bit of faith because we haven't had all those pluses that they've had. But I want you to consider this. Through all those years that the disciples followed Jesus, even when he went to the cross, they still didn't get him. They didn't understand what he was about. They were still jockeying for position during Holy Week, you know, two of the brothers had their mother go to Jesus and lobby for them to be able to sit on his right hand and his left hand when he came into power. They, 
didn't get it at all. They were still operating on the culture of their time, which expected the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, to come as a warrior king, blow the Romans out, reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. That's what they were still looking for. And they were so excited because these nobodies, these guys who lived on the back of the of beyond, who are never, ever really considered by anyone in power, suddenly were going to have the opportunity to have a seat at the table, to be able to exercise power themselves. This is what they understood. At the Last Supper, you have Thomas saying, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Show us the way. And he has to say, I am the way. You've seen me. Philip says, Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. In other words, show us a burning bush. Even with Jesus there, they still wanted a burning bush. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have you been with me? You still don't get it? After the crucifixion, they're in sheer terror. And they run up and they hide. They're hiding from the Jews. They're hiding from the Romans. They're living in terror. It's only the women that have any, you know, courage to them as they go to the grave and then they come back and report what they've seen and then of course the men don't believe them. They didn't get it. It wasn't until Pentecost that you see them actually turn. But here's the issue. In that period they only had Jesus for a certain amount of time. And even after Jesus appears to them, forgot about that part, they don't recognize him. Nobody recognizes him. They can't believe their eyes. They can't get their mind around the fact that Jesus is still present to them. And there's this period of darkness, and you have to imagine how deep that darkness must have been when all their hopes were pinned on Jesus to come back up the other side. And even Moses himself who got the burning bush, he argued with God. I don't want to do what you're telling me. i got a speech impediment, man. You know, I, I can't do this that you're asking me. Get, find somebody else. Somehow we think that they had a leg up, but they didn't. Humans are humans, and faith is faith. There is no certainty in spiritual matters. We wish there were. We imagine that there were. We read scripture, and we interpret it that way. But the way scripture is written is still not getting around the fact that humans are humans. They didn't have anything over on us. Not only that, Jesus tells them, it's to your advantage that I go, which is one of the weirdest statements, isn't it? I mean, it seems to be coming right to what she's talking about in the next phrase here. Was God being selfish when Jesus was resurrected and took him to heaven? I was taught that God needed him, but we need him here on earth. He wants us to have a better life, doesn't he? And here's Jesus saying, it's to your advantage that I go, because then the helper will come. Not that the helper wasn't already here, but you haven't been relying on the helper. You haven't been relying on things that you can't see. You've been trying to glom onto something that you can see, and that has been your limit. That has been your glass ceiling. That's as far as you can go. So it's to your advantage that I go away so that you can't see me anymore. So you will find within yourself what you're looking to me to vicariously provide for you. Why didn't Moses get to go into the promised land? Why did he have to die on Mount Nebo before everybody else went in, in sight of this land after 40 years of being God's faithful servant? Why? Because he tapped too many times on a rock for water? That's not the whole point. The whole point is the same thing we're talking about here. The people had glommed onto Moses as their leader. They had were clinging to Moses for their support. He needed to be taken out so they could find their own way of dealing both individually and as a nation 
with the relationship with God. And Moses was now in the way. Jesus was now in the way. There is something about us not being able to see. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that really is the condition of every single one of us. And so we need to understand that. They didn't have a leg up. We are experiencing the same difficulties that they experienced, even relatively different as the scriptures may be seen. And here we can only pray, not really knowing if God is getting our prayers. And that's true. When prayers are made of words, when we are speaking them out, when we are thinking them out, and we're looking for some sort of answer, or if it's a petitionary prayer and we're looking for some sort of response, we're looking for something to be fixed, someone to be healed, whatever we're looking for, it seems like we're just speaking into the void. But Jesus is working so hard with us to get us to graduate from earlier levels and to move up to more advanced stages of spirituality. He does this with the law. He says, you think that you're all right because you're following this law to the letter, putting that legal fig leaf on and everything is good. But I'm here to tell you that until this law becomes a part of who you are, until it's embedded in your heart, written on your heart, as Deuteronomy puts it, then you'll never understand what's really going on here. You need to graduate mere obedience and move into pure presence, which will inform you what love requires in any given moment. But you're just not following blindly some law. And it's the same thing with prayer. We need to graduate words and move into pure silence if we're really going to commune with God, which is exactly what Jesus tells us when he teaches us to pray. He says, don't use a lot of words. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Retreat into your inner space. Retreat into that secret spot because your father, who sees all things, will be there with you. What he's talking about, of course, is contemplative prayer, wordless prayer, prayer where we're getting away from all the thoughts in our head, the constant stream of words that separate us one from another. All our minds do is divide and conquer. All our minds do is separate and categorize. That's all they do. And if we're ever going to feel the pure connection of our God, it's going to be when we step aside from all of that noise in our heads and step aside from that very mechanism that makes us think we know who we are and how we're going to survive in advance. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to do. Yes, when we're praying with words, we never really know if anybody's on the other line. But when we step away from all of that thinking, then we get a sense that we know deeply that there's somebody on the other side of this. There's someone, not even on the other side, it's right here, it's right now. It's this fullness of presence that we feel, and it changes everything. It's amazing how we get stuck in certain places and we can't move, but it's the very concept that we have that is keeping us in place. This is why Jesus is always breaking things down, introducing paradox, introducing things that we can't think our way through so that we have to stop and just be. This is Jesus' method of teaching. Now she says, these questions arose when I lost my husband of 46 years. Talking to God, how could you take him from me when he was the most amazing person ever? 
So this is an example of a complex question. Are you guys familiar with complex questions? They're usually categorized as a logical fallacy, even though maybe it's not. Some people want to put it this place and that. The classic example of a complex question was, when did you stop beating your wife? Okay? When did you stop beating your wife? If it was a lawyer on the stand, because a lot of these things happen in courtrooms, right, and where the logical fallacies come into place, you know, you'd be trying to trip the guy up, you know. Why did you stop beating your wife? Of course, what it is, it's a complex question because it embeds a question beneath, what is really, which is really an assumption. You know, you are beating your wife. That's the assumption that's embedded into the question. So when she asked this question, how could you take him from me when he was the most amazing person ever, there is that assumption that he did take him from her. And the question is, is that the way really God works? And this is something that we go around the block over and over again. Um, we were just having a conversation on Wednesday night. You know, does God orchestrate every event of our lives? Are there coincidences? Or is there a reason and a purpose for everything that happens? This is a basic question about what is our relationship with the unseen in life? What's our relationship with life itself? I mean, as we live more and more and get older and older, we have seen the parade of tears, right? What's that song, Doctor My Eyes? Seen the parade of tears. We've seen all of this stuff that's gone through in our life. And some of it just seems so arbitrary and meaningless. Deaths that we've experienced, especially sudden ones or violent ones. How do we make any meaning of that? What does it mean? And so you can take a look at it as if God is the master puppeteer behind the scenes pulling the strings of everything that happens, taking people when he needs them or wants them out of the picture. And we imagine that there must has to be some kind of purpose in that, because otherwise, why would God do these things? But we're also assuming that he does do these things. If we assume that God is uh, making things difficult for us, giving us difficulties in order to teach us something, in order to chastise us for something, in, in order to grow us up or discipline us, or whatever we think that might be happening in that, in that realm, it's one thing when you don't get the job or the parking spot you want, right? What happens when your child dies, especially if your child dies in a pool and it was only two years old, like the family that I was counseling not too long ago? How do you square that? How do you understand that God took this child from you for whatever reason it may be? Like she said earlier, because God needed Jesus, he took him away from us, but we need him here. God took my child for what? What possible reason, what possible purpose could justify that? So for me, and now I'm strickling, strickling, <laughs> speaking strictly for myself, I had to deal with that. 30 years ago, when I was coming into this, this path, these are the kind of questions I was asking myself. How do I deal with this? Because I was watching people in our church praying for healing. And I remember this one instance where I was sure this woman was going to be healed. She was a missionary. She had cancer. She had three small children. They were doing everything right. I was in awe of missionaries and what they did, were doing in Eastern Europe. And the whole entire church was praying for her. They brought her back from... Europe to be here with the doctors. She had cancer, as I said, and I was just so sure she was going to be healed, and within, I don't know, three months, she was gone. What do you do with that? I mean, 
I could just paper it over and double down and just say that I need to pray harder, that my faith wasn't enough. I could say that God said no, or God said, you know, was it yes, no, wait a little while? We can come up with all these, these reasons, but it wasn't, it didn't feel real to me. It didn't feel that this was an explanation. And as I spent more time in the church, all the things that we prayed for, I never saw them rise above the uh, law of averages in terms of outcomes that we were actually praying for. And so I had to deal with this in a way. So here was my solution, you know, is that God is absolutely present in my life. He's Brother Lawrence present. He is here in, in every breath. I am breathing God in right now. But I don't believe that God is engineering all of the happenstances in my life, all the events and the circumstances and the things that happen. I believe that he set the universe up in such a way that it motors on and giving us sort of equal pleasure and pain, although for some people it seems to be weighted one side or another. But life does this. God doesn't do it specifically to each one of us. It's just the way that we live life. It's part of being human. Now, for some people, that makes God feel way too distant, kind of a deistic approach. But to me, God is not the absent landlord. He didn't just wind up the universe and go away. He's here and he's now, but he's not involved in all those pieces. Because if God didn't do these things to me, then it's up to me to move through them. Now, how do I justify that? Is there anything I can point to? You know the bumper sticker that says, God will never give us more than we can bear? I hate that. Maybe some of you do too. Because what does it imply? It implies we're kind of rats in a maze in a laboratory. And God is giving us just enough. He knows exactly where the breaking point is, but he's going to take us right up to that line and he's going to watch us squirm and then he's going to pull it away again. He's never going to... How in the world is that a God that you can trust? And remember, Jesus made the analogy between us as parents, Bisha parents, immature, unripe, evil, bad parents, and God. When he said, hey, if you who are evil, you who are bisha, you who are unripe, immature, not ready for prime time, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to his children who ask? He set up the analogy. If these are things that we wouldn't even do to our worst enemy, to our children, why do we assume that God would do them to us? But that line, God will give us, never give us more than we can handle, actually is a, a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 10.13. But Paul says something very different in that, and it's important for us to understand what he really said. And I put this in your, your uh, flyers if you want to take a look there, but you can, if uh, John's putting it up on the screen, I don't know, but 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you. That word temptation can be a trial, it can be a challenge, it doesn't have to be the sense of a temptation the way we normally think of that. It can be a trauma, it can be a death, it can be anything that challenges us, tries us, brings us to our knees, takes us to a limit situation where we come to the limit of what we can control and what we can conceptualize. No trial, temptation, challenge has overtaken you, but such as, in, as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Do you hear how different that is? First of all, the things that we have to deal with, the things that are presented to us in life, are just what are common to all humankind. It's what happens in life. People get sick. 
people die. Fences aren't high enough, and kids climb over and fall into pools. Dogs get hit by cars. I mean, these things happen. Are they simple coincidences? Well, I suppose you could call them that. I leave room for coincidence in my life, but they are things that happen. God isn't orchestrating them. They're part of life as it is being lived here in the physical world. But God is faithful. God is always with us. God never gives up. Who will not allow you to be tempted, to be tried beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Here's the thing. The way it's written, it looks like God is the actor. That's a Hebraic way of talking because God is sovereign and everything happens because God willed it because nothing can happen without God willing it. And nothing can happen against God's will. So you get that? If it happened because God willed it, just because it happened and for no other reason. But the truth of the matter is we're the actor, not God. We won't be, there's a caveat here, we won't be tried beyond what we are able to bear because God is always in the trial himself, present, in the moment. But that presupposes, giving us a way of escape, that presupposes that we'll actually avail ourselves to God's presence. It is up to us. The escape is there. The healing is there. The redemption is there. The forgiveness, the salvation, whatever it is that you need at that moment, it's already there. It can't be anywhere else because that's who and what God is. And God is everywhere, imminent and imbued in this universe, in this world of ours. But will we lean in and find that presence there? That's the key. Because as soon as we put our hand on a hot stove, first thing we're going to do is lift it off again. As soon as we're feeling the pain, we want to exit that pain. And as soon as we exit the pain, we exit the moment, we exit God's presence. We say over and over that we're only going to find God at the corner of here and now, right? That's it. And if we learn to go ahead and lean into the pain, to be present to even the difficult situations, that's where we find God's presence and the means of escape, the means of moving through it. That is so very different. And so this is how I have put it together. Yes, I leave room for coincidence. And this reason for everything is also an interesting one. Is the meaning of all of these occurrences in our life intrinsic to the happening itself? Or is it up to us to make the meaning from what we have experienced? And this is something that you're all going to need to decide. In fact, all of this, you're going to need to decide for yourself. Because whatever you decide, it's going to answer certain questions and it's going to just play heck with other ones. It's always a mixed bag. For me to go this way, I've had to deal with feeling more remote from God, but now I realize how I can bring the two together. Always a mixed bag. But is there a reason for everything? We need to find the reason in everything. I don't know if the reason is there in the actual happening. But as we move through it, as we connect with God's Spirit, as we work through it, we will find the reason that will grow us up further, that will open us up to more compassion, to more connection, to more love. We will be more mature, more Taba people as we go through these, as we make the meaning, find the meaning in it for us. Two people may experience the same thing and come up with different meaning. That's okay. We are always trying to look for something outside of ourselves 
when Jesus keeps emphatically telling us it's inside ourselves, he is here about kingdom. Everything to him is connected and umbrellaed with kingdom. Kingdom to me is the ultimate meaning in life. It's the quality of life we can have when our presence is so connected with each other and with God. But we're always looking for kingdom somewhere out there. This is what the disciples didn't get. They were still looking for kingdom to come. When is the kingdom coming? He says, stop asking when. I don't have anything to do with when. If you're still waiting, then you've already missed it. Kind of like lightning. If you see it, it already missed you. Same, same sort of thing. If you're looking for it, you've already missed it because you're waiting for something. He said the kingdom isn't out there to be found by observation. It's within you. It's among you. It's in your midst. It's right here. It's right now. And meaning, I think, is the same way. If we're looking for it out there someplace, we're waiting for something. We're waiting for someone to tell us something that we're supposed to... No, it's inside here. We bring it to the events of our lives. And that's what connects us. And that's what grows us up. It's a whole different way of looking at this. How's that sound? <laughs> I did a lot of talking there, didn't I? But this stuff is so foundational. This person who's really going through it, still dealing with her grief, you know, after several years. And these are the questions that she is crying out, you know, that Psalm 130 that I read, you know, de profundis clamavi, ad te domine, from the depths I cried to you, Lord, this is what she's doing, and so many of us have and maybe are right now. But a way of understanding this is going to be really important. And you deciding how you're going to look at this is really important. And whatever you land on, if it allows you, as I said, to accept life on life's terms and live with a sense of hope and gratitude, then it's great. There's nothing broke. Don't fix it. But keep in mind that you're only one trauma away from having to rework the whole thing. Because the next thing comes in, the next loss comes in, and suddenly you can't accept life on its terms anymore. And you've lost your sense of hope and gratitude. And so you need to expand to include that loss, that hurt, that grief. And then how can you then get back to the balance that you had before? This is life. It never stops as long as we're breathing. We are always on that spiral. And if we stay on the spiral, if we're willing to lean in, we're always getting closer to pure presence with God. Okay, Nina, could you get her a mic there, uh, Phil? <laughs> He's Phil Donahue, moving the mic around. Does that make me Marlo Thomas? Ah, uh, could be. Uh, Dave, I just had a comment. You know, I think so much of everything you're saying has to do with moving from belief into experience. And even in the book of James, it talks about, well, you say you believe. That's great. So the demons, you know, show me something. Um, what I've just been through, like, in the past two years, people probably say, well, where was God in all that? What did you learn? You know, I, I've had several near-death, I mean... I'm not going to go into detail. Regardless, where was God? In the humility of the orderlies, the nurses, the kindness, the food that was brought, cars that were sent. I mean, incident after incident after incident. God's presence was there through all that. So here's the choice. 
do I want to say, well, is that God or like, what am I really waiting for? I couldn't have made it without those kindnesses. And it was very humbling to see the care. I, I mean, do I feel loved? Beyond. Did I suffer? Unbelievably. But it is what it is, and here I am. So am I grateful? Extremely. And it's just, here I am today, and I've received so much. So I just wanted to comment on what you I'm said. I'm so glad you said that, because it really speaks to this, this question that we really didn't answer. You know, well, I was taught that God needed Jesus in heaven. We need him here on earth. He wants us to have a better life, doesn't he? There's that, that, that question, where is God now, and why isn't he helping us and protecting us? And the, the truth is, he is. But in the way that Nina's talking about, we are God's hands and feet. We are God's love and compassion in this life. We are the ones who administer that. Yes, you can be bolstered by your, your prayer, of course. You can be bolstered in your worship here. But where the rubber really hits the road is in what we need and how that's going to be supplied to us, especially in times of distress. And Nina found all those people around us. Well, Nina's in community with all of us. And so it's a no-brainer that we're going to rush to our defense. And so the key is be in community. I mean, Jesus tells us that over and over again. Be in community. So into the community so that when you need it, it will be reaped back. It's just the flow of love that moves in both directions. But this is how it works. You know, I've often said that we don't love God directly, not really, we love God by loving each other. That's how we love God. Jesus said as much. Yeah. Your love for God will be measured by the way that you deal with the least of these. Because if you can't do that, then how in the world do you say that you love God? And so this is how it works in our life. This is how it works in community. And Nina is just this living example, but I, we all have been there. We've all been there to a certain extent. Nina just likes to take things over the top sometimes, but... Uh, the last her last three years have just been ridiculous. If you want to ask her about it, you can you can ask her about it. But wow, and yet she's still here. She's smiling. She's energetic, and she throws herself back into life. That's it. Are we willing to do that when we get the wind knocked out of us? Are we willing to get back up and become vulnerable again? To be willing to get hurt again? Are we willing to do that? Because if not, our community dies, and then we'll be wondering where God is and why He's not protecting us because we're not in community and seeing how that really works. Yes, I know it's not as sexy as an actual supernatural miracle, but the truth of the matter is it's just as efficacious and it's just as real if you will let it be. And it allows us to see the miracle of human interaction and compassion and love that we can actually do this. And that's what Jesus said. If you're really my followers, then you will do what I am doing and greater things than these. And if we're not then we're not in kingdom. We still don't get it. And no burning bush is going to put that into us. It's just the experience of being vulnerable and getting hurt and coming up the other side that finally teaches us these things. There's no substitute. Jesus said that as well. Yeah, Kathleen. Hold on a second. Microbone. When you just said bolster yourself by prayer, taking the concept that you just explained to us that I believe in, that God just sets things in motion 
and doesn't select to punish this person or um, reward that person. With that in mind, is that the same as prayer? Are you saying bolster to make us feel good? Are we actually, does God actually listen to us, our petitions, and then decides to answer or disregard? I think God's answer is always the same. To any prayer we ask of him, the answer is yes. But the answer is yes, I'm here. I am your escape. I am the way through. It's not about the outcome that you would like to see. Those kind of just follow the law of averages, as far as I can tell at this point in my life. And i got a few decades behind me now. But he's always the escape. He's always the way through. And his answer is yes, I will always be here. We bolster ourselves in prayer by re-experiencing the actual presence of God, and it becomes more and more real to us every time we do, to a point that we actually trust it, that our blood pressure goes down. We actually have somatic responses to the trust and the conviction because it becomes so real to us. Every time we allow ourselves to just strip away all of that noise in our head, we have that sense of presence. That's what bolsters us. And that's God's emphatic yes Enna, enna, in Aramaic. I am, I am, I am that presence. And that's what allows us to move through and overcome whatever life may be presenting at the moment. That's the acceptance of life as life presents, as it is. And we can only do that when we have a sense of meaning, have a sense of purpose, have a sense of identity. But if that is only placed in our accomplishments and our roles and our attributes as a human, those are all going to be taken from us. And when they are, then we're left swirling again and we don't know who we are and we don't know if God's there protecting us. That's why it's so important for us to have true prayer that can start with words, start with thoughts, but then just thins out into silence, stillness, simplicity. That's it. That's how I see it, you know. That, that God is not the fixer of our circumstances. God is the strength, the wind beneath our wings that allows us to move through our circumstances, whatever they are. Now, I'll grant you that I have seen what looked like absolute miraculous healings. We prayed, it happened. And I'm not going to discount that. I'm not going to say that God doesn't heal. But Since sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, my pea brain, the only way I can deal with it is to say, don't go there. Don't put my faith on the outcome. Put my faith on the presence. Put my emphasis on the presence of God that will take me through whatever outcome. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to pray for one. I'll tell you what, if Marion was sick and in the hospital, I'd be praying for her healing. Of course I would. But I'd also be praying for God's presence to take me through and to be a support to her no matter what was happening at the time. Does that do it? Answer? I am praying. I, I, and again, I go to Jesus. I always go to Jesus as my model. So this is the Gethsemane prayer, right? Lord, please, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. First breath. Second breath, but not my will, but yours be done. That's the reconnection to presence and to will. Yes, this is what I desperately want. But more than that, I just want to be connected to you. If we do that. Oh, that's all I had to say? Gosh. (laughs) Sometimes I just talk too much. (laughs) 
Any other comments on that? Because there's more. How much time we got? We're already at 1130. Um, here's one that, uh, that I, just, I wanted to follow up on because this is actually one that Tina asks. Uh, I think it's getting to be two Sundays ago. She asked about what does it mean when Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, remember? And I answered it kind of in a general way. Um, because I hadn't gone back to the to the passage, and I, and I told you at the time that you know without the context, without knowing the context, I, I can't really be sure. So I, I still stand by the answer I gave, but this is going to be much more on point. This comes from Second Corinthians five, uh, verses one through eight. Now to set this up, in chapter four, what he's talking about is the fact that his church there, his little ecclesia, is is under intense persecution, and that could be from the um, the Greeks, it could be from the Jews, it could be from the Romans, it could be from a combination of forces, all arrayed against this little this little community that he was forming, and he's trying to bolster them, he's trying to get them to take courage and to and to hang on, you know. So he's talking about the persecution, what they're going through. He's talking about don't lose your heart. And he says, even if you see your outer self, your outer man, your outer woman decaying, if you're seeing things falling apart around you, just understand that your inner person is still being renewed at the same time. Our tendency, he says, is to focus on the things that we see, but those are temporal. Those are going to pass away. And he tells him you need to focus on the things that are unseen because they are eternal. So, I mean, what would you say if someone is being persecuted, but you want them to maintain their faith and maintain their direction, even in the face of this withering fire, whatever it happens to be? You know, focus interiorly. Okay, so he's saying that right up to the end of chapter 4. So at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's setting up a metaphor. Paul loves metaphors. Always got a metaphor. Metaphor for every occasion, right? So the earthly tent, of course, is our human bodies. This is what we're inhabiting right now. And if that earthly tent, which is our house right here and now, is torn down, in other words, if we have to die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven, in the heavens. This is the, the house that Jesus talks about when he says, I go to my father's house. There's many mansions there, and I'm going to build one for you. Now, that's an allusion to the Jewish wedding feast, of course, where the groom would leave after the betrothal and build the house that they were going to live in as an add-on to his father's estate and then come back and claim his bride. So they understood that kind of allusion maybe a little better than we do. But there's also this idea that maybe there's going to be some sort of spiritual body that we are going to have in place of the, of the present physical one that we have now. Could be that as well. For indeed, in this house, in this body, in this physical world, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, longing for that new, whatever it happens to be, right? That new body, that new spiritual dwelling place. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Okay, now that's a difficult one in this, this very kind of literal translation. But what he's talking about here is while we are here in our earthly bodies, we're, we're burdened, we're suffering. It's painful. All kinds of bad things are happen, happening. But we don't want to be unclothed. In other words, we really don't want to die. That still scares us, right? 
And so we've got this dichotomy. We're in pain, we're miserable, all these things are arrayed against us. We still don't want to die. We want to be clothed, right? So that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. In other words, we want to have this spiritual body which will transcend the physical body. So what he's basically saying is that old saying that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's kind of like that, what he's talking about here. That's the paradox we're in. That's the dichotomy. That's the, that's the, the horns of the, of the contradiction. But, he says, now he, God, who prepared us for this very purpose, that's why we're here to live and die and to learn in that process something that apparently we can't learn any other way. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. And the word there literally means a down payment. So he gave us the Spirit as a down payment. He gave us the Spirit as a little taste of this unseen life, of this unseen building, this structure, this new body or clothing that we can have and will have in the next life. The spirit here is that down payment and that pledge in this life. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, living in this body, we are absent from the Lord. We are not able to see God directly. He remains unseen, intangible, unknown, mysterious, all those things. As long as we are home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, though, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So it's a little bit different than the way that it's, when it's stripped out to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. He's saying, no, we would prefer, even though we don't want to die, even though we're afraid of it, even, but even, then, even though we're suffering, yes, because we're suffering, we would like to be absent from all this suffering and present to the Lord. And while we're here at home in the body and absent to the Lord, we have to deal with these things in terms of the, the mystery and the paradox. But through it all, we can have courage because our aim is still the same. Whether we're living or whether we're dead, whether we're at home in the body or at home with the Lord, our goal is still to be pleasing to him in everything we do. And that is never going to change. That's eternal. And we can do that now here in this unknowing. We can do that here now with unseen spirit and God. And then we'll do it later when everything changes in ways we can't even imagine. Make a little more sense now, I hope. <laughs> Amazing stuff. And this led me right in. I had a uh, counseling session um, at the hospital. We had... Um, one of the nurses died uh, from cancer, who had been 16 years there at the, at the hospital. And so I was called in to talk to staff as they were dealing with this, because it was so, to them it was sudden, even though she had been fighting it for three years. Um, but to them it was very sudden. They just heard about it at the beginning of their shift, and everybody was kind of rocking and reeling. And so I ended up talking to about five different uh, staff members there. And one of them, as it came up in the uh, conversation, was that, this triggered an intense fear of death in her. 
which is always a secondary form of grief, right? We're grieving the loss of the person, but then it also transfers onto us, and we start doing an, an, an anticipatory grief of our own death. But then, as we were talking about it, she says she's always had this, and she really couldn't pinpoint why. She didn't um, grow up in a, in a super religious family. She, they were nominally Christian. They, they Christian in name, and, and she believed in God and all that, but she hadn't really done anything in the last 20, 25 years in terms of spiritual formation. But she, as long as she can remember, she had this intense fear of death. And uh, so we talked about that. You know? And, of course, one of the things that you, you, we all need to answer for ourselves is, who are we? You know, if I ask you who you are, how are you going to answer that question? I asked her that question. She couldn't answer. I had to keep pressing her and pressing her. And finally she came back with, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a smart person. I'm, I'm uh, stubborn. You know, uh, I, can, I can be uh, irritable and angry. Anyway, she went through with all the attributes that she has uh, and mostly, mostly emotional affects, you know. And I told her that's one of the three ways that everybody answers in terms of categories of answers. We answer with the roles we play. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a father, I'm a mother, whatever I am. We answer with our accomplishments, right? I'm a businessman, I'm a sportsman, I'm a minister, God forbid. Whatever, you know, all these things. And then we answer with our attributes, as she did, you know. I'm an angry person, I'm a loyal person, whatever. Because when it comes right down to it, those three categories of answers are everything that we can conceive of as being who we are. You know, it's, it's tantamount to our name. Our name is who we are because of the roles we play and the accomplishments and the attributes that we recognize in ourselves. And so she answered with all those, but here's the deal. If anything can be taken from you, it's not who you really are. And we fear death because at the moment of death, everything that it means to be who you are, everything that it means for you to be yourself as you understand yourself, ends at the headstone. Now, life is going to do a good job of stripping those things away long before you die, often, but death is the ultimate. Anything that you're left clinging to, what do you do then? And if all that stuff is gone, then what's left? Is there anything left? Does anything continue? And if it does, how does it continue? I mean, every single one of us, unless you've been avoiding it this long, has thought these thoughts, right? We all fear that moment when everything it means to be who we are is gone. How do we deal with that? What I talked to her about was contemplative practice. Of course I talked to her about contemplative practice. What else am I going to do, right? That's me. But I told her that contemplation is sometimes called the little death because you're practicing for that moment of real death by stepping away from everything it means to be who you are. What you're doing in centering prayer, what you're doing in meditation, what you're doing in mindfulness is stepping away from everything that you are constantly thinking about that anchors you in the sense of self in that egoic way. And when you do that, you have this sense of expansion and, and freedom. You have this sense of connection. You have this sense of being held. Anybody who's talked to you about a near-death experience, they always coach it, couch it in the same way. That sense of connection, that sense of being held. Regardless of the imagery, there's that sense of connection. And when you actually have that moment where you really step away in your meditation, in your prayer, from everything that's word-based, you have that same sort of connection. And I told her, you've already felt this. You know, meditation was not something she'd practiced, but I said, you've felt this. She had two boys. I said, when they put that brand new infant on your chest 
in the delivery room and you're looking down and that face is the entire universe. Were you thinking about anything? No, there was no words. You were just present. You were just there. And it was an incredibly connective experience. Looking at a sunset that just draws you in and the words just drain away. You have that same experience of just being present, aware without thinking about it, and that sense of connection. Life makes sense at that point. It has meaning. It has purpose. You have a sense of who you are in a way that words can't contain. In your work, in sports, in flow, if uh, Mike Davis were here, is he here? He'd say, you find it on the golf course, you know? Because that's where he enters into that place of flow, where he's present without thinking about it. I said, so you've experienced this. Now, here's the irony. We will never feel better, more fulfilled, more meaningful, more purposeful, more identified, more connected and more loved than when we step away from everything that our head contains. When we completely let go of self, that's when we understand what life is all about. And it is an amazing experience. And yet death, which is the ultimate stepping away of self, is what we fear. But wouldn't it hold that if every time we step away of everything we think it means to ourselves, we have that sense of connection and love, that the same thing is going to happen at death? But it still scares us. But if we can experience this more and more, if it becomes a part of who we are in our lives, this contemplative practice, this practicing stepping away, more and more the conviction builds that somehow everything's going to be okay in ways that we can't imagine. It's going to be okay. And then the trust can come in. Then the anxiety can drop. There is still going to be something left there, I guarantee you, when you come up against it. But it's going to be manageable, and it won't take over your life. Ultimately, yes, we're always going to have a fear of death because we fear the unknown, and we're wired to survive. But as long as that fear does not overtake your ability to be present in your moments, in other words, to live now, it's acceptable. It's just life as a human being. But when that fear starts to completely debilitate you, keep you from being able to live your life now, that's something that needs to be looked at. But contemplation can help once again. Contemplation can take us there. All right. I had a couple more, but I just can't go there. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> Mike had one. Um, well, I'll get to it somehow. I don't know. But just really quickly before we, we close, this is the fifth Sunday of, of Lent. So there's only one more Sunday of Lent next Sunday, um, which is Palm Sunday, as I mentioned. And so we've got two weeks. We've got a fortnight left uh, before Easter. And what I would like to at least um, encourage you all to do is to see about maybe establishing for yourself quiet time for these next two weeks in the mornings, as much as you possibly can. If you, can, if you can let mo no more than one day go by where you have some quiet time, where you practice, whatever it is you practice, it's just quiet time, reading, a, a time of just being still with your cup of coffee in the morning, 20 to 30 minutes, you know, or if you actually do centering prayer or do some sort of meditation, and then try to carry that through your day as mindful presence. What Lent is about typically has been a time of penance and a time of preparation. You know, we've looked at it so much as penance that it, I know from my Catholic upbringing, uh, it has a real negative content, content, 
context. We were always taking something away that we loved in order to um, get closer to God or to prepare for God, you know, and, and suffering in order to prepare for God. But instead of looking at it as a taking away and a negative, looking at at it as putting something in as a positive. And what we're putting in are the four S's. Solitude, silence, stillness, simplicity. Find a way to bring that into your lives over these next two weeks as a preparation for these rituals that we have of Good Friday and Easter. And see if you can bring that in. The 40-ness of, of, of Lent is meant to mirror the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. That same stripping away, going out into this barren landscape, and then mirroring that inside, taking all that away, stripping down, taking the descent so that you can experience what's really there at the bottom of the dog pile and connect with that. Get more of a sense of that meaning and purpose and identity. Get a sense of that exhilaration that can sometimes be there, or at least the peace and the contentment when you are just who you really are, that deeper self, and do that day by day. And if you don't know how to put that together, if it's, if it's something that is uh, intriguing but sort of out there, come see me. We'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about how you can put something together that makes sense for you and is doable for you. But uh, I'm going to try to practice what I preach here, and so I'm going to do the same thing and, and, uh, and get prepared for Good Friday and Easter. And I hope that you all can do something, whatever it is, to change the tone, to change the awareness and the perception, get into a quieter space and see what that brings into your life because it's amazing what it can bring. Okay. Yeah, we got to stop. It's getting, getting late. But um, I know there's still more questions. Next week we'll be doing um, Good for, uh, Palm Sunday, maybe on the far end of it. If you guys still have more questions, we'll, we'll dive back into this. I'll do this till the cows come home because this, is, this is stuff is important. This is where the, the rubber really meets the road. So thank you all for playing along. Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning. Once again, thank you for being the truth itself, being the answer itself that we can only experience, we can't conceptualize. Help us more and more to realize that so even as we ask questions, we realize that the truth is beneath the words that we are speaking. And help us eventually to let go and just be so that we can experience what it means to be in connection with you, which is all the truth we're ever going to need or ever going to experience in life now or then. So thank you for always being there, Lord, and carrying us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.